What time is it? 8 30. <laughs> Welcome to episode 7 of the Levingston Experience. I'm joined once again on the Friday afternoon, or it's 8.30 as Cliff Levingston would say at the outset, by Darren Hill. And Darren, you're walking on air because you've just watched the Bucks almost blow an 18-point lead, uh, but they came back with a last-second shot by Drew Holiday to beat the Memphis Grizzlies. Yes, Daz, we try not to get, not to get too high here in the regular season, but a nice W nice W from Milwaukee, good hard-earned win into Memphis. Uh, Jaw played terrific. Um, and just good kind of battle in the second half. Not the, not the neatest or sexiest basketball today. Lots of overs, lots of fouls, but good hard NBA game leading into the break. So 112-111, and good moment for Drew as he's come back from a pretty tough COVID. Um, I think everyone's kind of doing it tough who comes back from COVID, but nice to see him finding his feet. Hit a nice 20-footer with about two seconds to go. So that yeah. was the decider. I get the sense a number of teams are just waiting for the All-Star break. They're just uh, at that point where they're, maybe played one or two too many games. Uh, and, and I think fans are going to be back in the arena as well sometime just after the All-Star break. So I think that's a lot of players are holding out for that as well. Uh, maybe looking forward to that a little bit more than they are some of those games at the moment. But does, that doesn't mean that we haven't seen uh, some, some play worth commenting mm. on, some Livingston moments that had us off the couch uh, in the last couple of for weeks. sure. The first one I want to talk about is I want to talk about winning time in the NBA and really what and as you know the way I watch games mm. is I try and catch the close games uh, on a day to day basis where I can and one such game I caught was Cleveland and Philadelphia and I was really interested actually to watch the Sixers in a close game because they haven't been involved in all that many close games so far this season despite their good record and Cleveland of course had been on the you know the Livingston curse we're calling it does because since we wax lyrical about the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Houston Rockets I think they've won about two games between them on Houston currently on an 11 game <laughs> losing streak uh, after we as I say wax lyrical about them but the Cavs on this night, it really stood out to me that they were doing the little things that you need to do to win the games of basketball, you know, setting the screens in the right place, not committing dumb fouls, uh, take, you know, taking the shots when you're open and not forcing up stuff and just going to a two-man game, playing a team game of basketball. Whereas Philadelphia, on the other hand, it was the same stuff that they do, they've do. they been doing for the last five years in these close games, and it was just dumb fouls, ill-advised shots, bad passes, you know, that they still lead the league in turnovers and things like this, the, the, the sixes. So I actually got, came away from the game encouraged still about the Cavs and where they are in terms of uh, their young development, but I think it was more a story about the Sixers. And look, maybe it was just a bad game, a bad night or at the office on their part, but I did come away very concerned about how is this team going to look when it comes down to the last few minutes of play in some of these close playoff games where in the past they have had a real problem. Yeah, so... We'll try to keep positive here, Dazzle, but that was one of the, that was the game where Embiid had 42. Simmons had so Embiid was massive as you'd expect against a very kind of undersized Cleveland team. Um, he had 42 and 13 was very efficient, but that's a game Simmons just he had, he had uh, eight assists and seven turnovers. Right, just one of those games where um, you know it just didn't he just had no no can especially in the half court right uh, by Simmons. And then the rest of the roster, right? So 66 points for those two guys and 43 points for the rest of the roster. So just one of those awfully imbalanced games for Philadelphia's perspective. But on the on the positive side, right, what I saw, right, is this, this bloody Cleveland team. It is, it is kind of weird we keep talking about them. It is, isn't it, Daz? It's like, it's pretty weird we keep talking about the freaking Cavs, but here we are again. But um, that was that was kind of me for the Darius Garland game. He looked he looks like a really much more instinctive kind of distributor um, than Sexton, where Sexton's got that right. He's kind of a score first point guard, isn't he? Kind of um, very electric athleticism. But what I saw from Garland was uh, you know really nice jump passes where he drops a bit quicker, or um, he pumps and goes on a on a closeout, but he's got his head up looking for the backside or looking for a corner shooter. So I thought that Garland played really, really well. And um, it was just fun to watch them. The last point I'll make is that, uh, you know, very undersized Cleveland teams be um, uh, the Sixers. And perhaps to your point about 
just playing out the string here. But they crashed the offensive boards, and Okoro, Okoro had five offensive boards that game, and they, you know, Philly only had 38 defensive rebounds and 13 offensive um, boards for, for Cleveland. So it just sort of sensed a bit of hustle, a bit of effort kind of game. So and, and so I liked what I see from Cleveland. I, I, I think I want to rename Sexland Garsex to kind of put the <laughs> middle finger to Garpax. I think Garsex sounds better. Yeah, um, you can take that, um, Cavaliers fans. But, uh, yeah, Cleveland just – pops up and surprises you and um it's also nice to see jared allen now just firmly in the starting line and getting big minutes and we don't have to suffer through andre drummond's ole defense anymore so many reasons to be um sort of optimistic in cleveland and again i don't want to go too far with one game against cleveland but what i did see in philly in that one was just a that perimeter susceptibility to these uh, kind of guards the playmaking off the bounce guards like garland and sexton that's not a good matchup for the Seth Curry and Danny Greens of the world and Furkan Korkmaz and Shake Milton's. That's that's not a great matchup for them as to these quick athletic guards out front, which has you then thinking of what's that going to mean for a theoretical matchup against, say, a Kyrie and a James Harden, you know, of, of the Brooklyn Nets. So um, that for me was a, kind of some Livingston moments, but a bit of a glimpse of the future where I think Philly's going to need to do something to show up perimeter defense as great as Simmons is he just can't stay in front of these really these really quick guards. Those yeah, are my well, I mean, that, and that was the thing. I mean, the the decision making of the Cavs, who are you know ostensibly a young team, they're not going to be in the playoffs. They're building versus the decision making of Philadelphia, who ostensibly are going to be a contender for the NBA title this year, was absolutely stark. Now, again, one game sample size, but if Philly don't fix up the turnover problems, like turnovers are death against the Brooklyn Nets. So that's going to come back and bite them big time, I think, in a uh, in a seven-game series once it comes to the playoffs. But on Embiid, I mean, like Jared Allen played as well as you can possibly play mm-hmm. against him, made him work for everything, and he got 42 points. So that's that gives you some idea. And, I mean, he hit a, a big three against the Jazz. I mean, he's just been on an absolute tear. Uh, and, and we'll talk about him more, I'm sure, when we get to our mid-season awards a bit later on, Daz. Um, and we talk about you know, MVP, etc., mm. uh, with Joel Embiid. So Embiid certainly jumped out, but it also jumped out, you know, Danny, like 35 seconds left, and it was a one-possession game, and Danny Green just committed a foul in the backcourt. And you just think, and then Cleveland are on the line, it's a five-point game. And then they fouled before the ball came in when they had to start fouling. Just little things, little sort of attention to detail things that you cannot get wrong, and they're still getting them wrong. So I think it's fair to say Doc Rivers still working to uh, you know to, to get rid of the process, um, the, the remnants of the process out of what's happened there in Philly <laughs> before. Uh, another close game. I mean, let, let's concentrate on winning time because I know you you looked at a close game between the Bucks and the Clippers. Now, the Bucks have been really poor in close games. That's another reason why it was good to see them win today. But they pulled out another close one against the Clippers and a good defensive game, which is pretty rare to say in today's NBA. What did you see from both sides in that game? The the Levingston moment and the experience moment for me, Daz, was two teams engaged in playing really good NBA defense. And it just I, it, you and I have been very consistent about this over the years, and I probably was, I probably evolved, to be honest, from my Steve Nash, um, Amari Stoudemire sons, who could play flashes of defense, right? Um, but um, especially in the modern NBA, with this just 53 pointers um, taken by 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 just about every team now, and a very common, you know, 129, 126 is your common NBA score these days. I tell you what, when I watched a 105 to 100 game, which was the final score between the Bucks and the Clippers, which is you know Giannis and Drew Holiday battling against Paul George and, and Kawhi. It's just so much more enjoyable. You just, you get, it's the tension. It's proper tension, right, Daz? It's it's two fighters actually trading blows um, and actually resisting each other rather than just this, you know, 48 minutes of horse. So that's what jumped out at me, Daz, was a, I wouldn't say playoff atmosphere, but they definitely saw, both teams saw this as a measuring stick kind of game. So it's just nice that they both teams play defense. It's nice that both teams had a full, Drew was just kind of getting back. He didn't play terribly great or that many minutes, but um, still makes his impact felt on defense. So teams mostly at full strength and playing ball on both ends to ask. So that was the, that was, first of all, it was a nice 
really good NBA product game against two of the probably six or seven best teams in the league playing on both ends. Um, and then just from a Bucks perspective, yeah, obviously a lot has been said about their execution, particularly the way they wilted against Miami in the playoffs last year in the fourth quarters, well-documented. They scored the final nine points of the game. So the Clippers had kind of took control of that game in the fourth. Chris Morris doing typical Marcus Morris stuff, which is these irrational three-pointers that you just, they feel like backbreakers when they go in, you know, with three minutes and four minutes left from the game, they feel like backbreakers, but the Bucks took the punches made a couple big shots of their own and then locked it down. They played turf defense the last couple of minutes and really made Kawhi and Paul George work for their um, contested threes um, that they did get up. But uh, yeah, 9-0 run to finish the game. And so that was really it. it was a, I don't want to go too deep on that one. There wasn't any spectacular individual efforts in their dads. Just a really great two teams engaged, good crunch time. And nice to see the Bucks finish it off. Now, if you're a Clippers fan, you say, gosh, we've seen this story before as well. Similar problems with the Bucks, right? The way they um, folded and said, couldn't close out against Denver last year. And some of that's haunted them again this year as they got a bit of this your turn, my turn stuff with Paul George and Kawhi. And let's be honest, these aren't exactly James Harden, Kevin Durant playmakers, are they? Like these guys plays for themselves. They don't really elevate the guys around them. So my reflection to our first comments, I, I think there's some similar um Similar gaps in both Philadelphia and Clippers, these wannabe contenders. They just this point guard um, creation and things off the bounce and that creation in the half court to look and find and, and perhaps pass or look people open in the half court where um, was also missing from the Clippers as well. So, But we'll focus on Livingston. Nice comeback by Milwaukee and yay defense, Daz. Well, one of the anti-Livingston uh, moments that I would have on a game-to-game basis, Daz, and I know it's something that gets you all going as well, is the constant bitching at officials uh, that, that a lot of the stars, pretty much every star in the NBA does. And my Livingston moment, and, and I've, I've kind of become Bill Simmons of the Spurs in that I only watch Spurs games now, unfortunately, occasional close game involving another team. So I'll try not to focus on the Spurs side of some of the games, but I can focus on the opponents that they came up against. And the Spurs played the Pelicans, and not a well-officiated game on both, both sides of the ball. But Zion Williamson does... And he didn't even have a really good game in this one, but he never, ever bit to officials. Like, I didn't see it in any of this game, and I haven't seen it in any other game this season. And it's so refreshing to watch a guy just get out there and play the game and not get caught up in this constant back and forth with the official and whinging about, oh, I should have got this call, I should have got that call, that you see and that LeBron James, of course, has uh, popularised during his career. So have you sort of noticed that as well? I mean, is that something that just jumped out at me in that one game or is it something that you've noticed as a bit of a trend was on? I love that you said it. So uh, I'll come back to the bitching in a moment. Let's focus on Zion, where the Bucks also played them fairly recently as well. And he doesn't, he's still Zion. He's got probably his 30 and his 10 that game, but he doesn't match up well against the Bucks' length, right? So life took out for him in the lane against Giannis and Brooke, right? He's a right? He, he's a tank, right? But when he has to shift and contour his body and go around extreme length, it's not a great matchup for him. But only when you said that did I realize that that was exactly the same dynamic that happened in that Bucks game, which is he didn't say a peep, right? And he was frustrated and crowded and, no doubt, hit, hit hit up and hit hit high and hit low and, and his body as much as he can. And, and never once did I see him, almost Dante DiVincenzo, just kind of so clinical with the way he approached the game, Daz. I think it has to be lauded. And I particularly, as a Bucks fan, right, have seen Giannis have to go through this. Giannis got very frustrated in those early couple of years. The last kid year started to become right a, a true all-star in this turning into an MVP where he's going to get bleep and hammered every time he goes to the basket. I saw him famously get himself in early foul trouble or he'd do even worse. He'd, he'd get an offensive charge call. I mean, he'd lose his shit, go down the other end and make a terrible, you know, make a stupid defensive play or he'd go to the rack, get hammered and hit and no call would come and he'd stop and stare at the ref and complain and go back and make a frustration foul and get himself in trouble and taken out of the game. So I have to work through this being aware of just how physical his body is and what's going to happen to him. So it is an amazing credit to Zion, who maybe now that I think about it, 
Zion's probably been really, really big his whole life. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe he's just this probably since age 10. Giannis only became a giant like in real time in the NBA. So, um, but I have also two this year, uh, probably undocumented because no one cares about Giannis anymore because he's boring and <laughs> he's 20. Who cares? Right. But his fouls are way down this year, Daz. And that's why his minutes are also up this year. His minutes are up and his fouls are down because he's just not bitching anymore as much. It doesn't mean he's not getting hit, but he's not bitching. And so focus, love you pointed that out. I hadn't noticed it until you said it. But yeah, super kudos to, I don't know if it was Coach Krzyzewski or just the way Zion's wired or what it is, but it's nice to see, especially for a guy that's going to keep getting hit more and more, the better he gets especially in an era when you're exactly right. You know, three out of four players spend half their day, you know, complaining to the referees. Well, I saw one particular player that jumped out at me, and this is where I really noticed it was. Uh, he got absolutely hacked going up for a shot, and the ball, one of those ones where the ball comes, goes off his knee and out of bounds, and they just gave the ball to the Spurs. And he just turned on his heels and went down the other end of the court and started playing defense. And I thought, how many players would have sat there and just complained to the referee you know, a minute later, they're still pouting about it and they give up an easy basket down the other end or whatever it might be, you know. Or sometimes, I, you know, in the Boogie Cousins sort of example, it takes them out of their whole game for sometimes quarters of the time. Yeah. If, if you let them get it too Young too Boogie. Yeah. You know. They kind of snap. And I I'm, I probably just mentioned it. I forgot if I mentioned it off air or on air, but just watching the very last two possessions of this Bucks memphis game and the electric John Morant, right, makes a beautiful move and goes to the rack and scores with um, with about eight or well, 10 seconds left to give them the lead, right? And he went down on the ground. There was no big contact. It's also the final possession. And instead of getting up and sprinting back on the play where Drew drained that 16-footer with two seconds left, he was under the baseline throwing his arms up looking at the refs. He didn't bounce up and sprint back. He even made the basket to take the lead, and he's still worried about, you know, thinking about it's an and one. Don't like that. Don't like that one bit. And so that's why I'm also going to continue my petition, petition to have James Harden removed from the league <laughs> because, but God, but then God Harden, he goes and has a 31. Well, Harden's, 31, Harden's my next, next Livingston no moment. Turnovers. My yeah, next Livingston moment is Harden. That, but, um, so let's, let's not jump in. But, uh, Last yeah, he point. He popularized it, but I anyway, mean, question without nose to you. Where, do you think that's going to continue that? Or do you think someone's going to get in his ear yes. and say, you need to start bitching about calls because you're not getting enough calls. Or, I mean, it's going to be interesting too, I guess, to do some analysis and say, is, is it hurting his ability to get calls by not consistently carrying Zion or Harden? Zion. I'm going to, I'll deflect that one to his coach, right? Because if you, if you listen to, uh, forgot the name, do you remember there was this amazing, the head of refereeing did an amazing podcast. Oh, uh, Joey Simmons, Crawford, I believe, I about two years. I think it was Joe Cro- Yeah, right. And, and he talks about brilliantly the psychology of, of refereeing and how important it is that, you know, the way that they are developing the referees to have the right emotional intelligence and treating these players like human beings and, and not that the refs are robots and the players are robots, but there's are humans who are emotional and volatile, especially with adrenaline coursing through their bodies, talks about just how important it is the, um, the player-referee relationship is one of trust. And so I think if you start to see Zion bitching and bitching, that's going to be seen a bit out of character. So I'm hoping that's one of those relationships with, with Stan Van Gundy. Stan's not quiet, Daz. I think he's a great coach there, right? Mm. Who will say, keep doing what you're doing, Z. I'll, I'll handle um, the refereeing so that you can keep your relationship with them. So that's my hope, Daz. I think it's a, that's a Stan Van, uh, Stan Van sort of a domain. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you someone that's never going to be accused of not bitching at referees, and that's Tom Thibodeau. Uh, we saw the Knicks <laughs> come into San Antonio, and he just berates the referees up and down the court on every single possession of the game, and he just so where and the Knicks, unsurprisingly, get no calls. So you know, I, I wonder if someone needs to get in Tibbs' ear and say, Tibbs, whatever you're doing is not well, working. Yeah. Um, oh, I got a minor Levington of the week. Yep. Can I give a, a softer, a softer mm-hmm. one? So, right, the kids. The kids like to talk about Mello. Right? Mello actually now means LaMelo Ball. And so, oh, my God, Daz, can we? Can there be two Mellows? Can we say the <laughs> name? Right? Are we allowed? 
is it is it disrespectful is it uh brand infringement is a trademark infringement you know, what are people thinking all the gen xers and old fuckers like me hey, there's only one mellow the kids gotta earn it uh, shake fist at cloud sort of that chatters been going around the twitterverse and guess what a reporter asks carmelo anthony about it after the game and he's like man it's fine let the kid play it's respect it's a it's just a name it's a name you know and it's respectful and he's great and you know, obviously, I've had a great career. It's great that he's doing great and cool, brother. He's like, he just shit, Daz. I'm like, you know what? I, I kind of like Portland Carmelo. <laughs> he's growing on me. Well, this is and, the and Carmelo was one of the humility. Well, he was one of the things I had yeah. to share that because it was like, what the odds that you would have given that Carmelo Anthony was going to have this renaissance that he's had with Portland when he first signed there. 12%. It was a one in, one in eight shot. It was going to have to be one in eight. It was a 12% chance, Daz. Yeah, mm. for it, sure. It was highly unlikely. Put the bench, Daz. Well, yeah. given how he flamed out in Houston, okay, given how he flamed out in okay, so you're sitting there thinking, you know... Uh, I just, I just couldn't see. I couldn't see it in my own mind. You know, how is he going to fit with this team? How is he going to contribute? And to to his credit, he's been a good. I mean, he's been a very important part of the team this year. That's been sitting around that sort of five seed mark in the West uh, since CJ McConnell went out. And to your point about the game they had against um, Lamelo Ball, Lamelo Ball had thirty points in that game, and Camilo Anthony had twenty nine. So that was a bit of a dueling sort of the dueling banjos, if you like, of those two players. Uh, and they swapped jerseys at the end of the game. So it was good to see. And look, it's always good to see a guy sort of reinvent his career in, in a sense um, and sort of prove the doubt is wrong. And, and credit to Terry Stotts as well, who's done some really good coaching there this year uh, to, to get him to buy into his role and actually find a role for him in the NBA where he can contribute. Yeah, I think it's Terry Stotts, but I think it's also, right, I think we, we probably can't underestimate the impact of Damian Lamont, Ollie Lillard, right? Where you got a leader like Dame Lillard. Um, oh, by the way, I had to look that I didn't know his middle name was Lamont, Ollie. That's so cool. <laughs> Damian Lamont, Ollie Lillard. That's that's a great name. And, and to see, so I think no doubt Dame's influence, you're right, probably... Stotts as well, setting, you know, setting um, clear boundaries and expectations of what Melo's role is. Melo's still coming off the bench, right? Um, but guess what? Melo's closing games, and he's not a total sieve, Daz. Like, that was another moment under the radar kind of this was. He played terrific in crunch time against the Warriors in a pretty entertaining um, – I only saw the highlights, so I can't – I didn't see it live. Uh, one possession, 108-106 victory for the, for the Blazers where Melo had a terrific game. He was 22-2-4, right? It's kind of mellow, but 8-13. Um, hit all of his free throws in crunch time, only one turnover, was a plus five, and played. You know, played crunch time. So granted, uh, Golden State's not the most, you know, and not the, num- not the number one defense or anything like that, but that's just credit to, again, he's accepted his role. He's taken a humble stance. He's having casual fun jar- jibes against, you know, with, with LaMelo and encouraging to have his name. He's playing hard down the stretch, and, He's not a complete sieve, you know, Daz. So, yeah, love to see it. Love well, to see it. Shout out to freaking Carmelo Anthony, man. He's been efficient and, and he's active, at least, on defense. And as you say, he's not just he's a, active. a traffic yeah. cone, uh, as he was for a number of years there, which was really, particularly, I think, in OKC, it was, it was quite stark how bad he was on that end. Uh, look, Daz, my next uh, Livingston moment, before we sort of move into some of the news of the league, it's not often you get beaten in a in an overtime game. Your team gets beaten in an overtime game, and you walk away from the game with a smile on your face. That happened for me this week with a crazy game between the Spurs and the Nets. But James Harden does. I'll tell you what, Scott Skiles needs to get a little bit nervous about his 30 assist record because if Harden, one of those games, decides I'm going to break 30 assists, I think he's going to be able to do it because had 10 assists uh, up to half time in this game, but they must have missed five wide open shots uh, in that time. He could have easily had 15 assists going to the half. And I wonder if he gets to a game with 15 assists, whether he's going to say, you know what, I'm going to go for the 30 and see if I can do it tonight. And I think the other thing, as you mentioned earlier, what was the final stat line? I think it was 31, 14, 15 and, and, no, and no turnovers. 
the efficiency yeah. he's playing with. And you just, it's, it's fun to watch. Like this version of Harden, which not bitching at officials, not score first hard and pass first hard, and is really fun to watch. And that reminded me a little bit of Steve Nash back in the day, where Nash was famously pass first and maybe should have shot the ball a little bit more when you look back in hindsight at his career. Um, I don't think anyone's ever going to make that that uh, allegation against James Harden. But even in this game, like he had 11 points up into the third quarter. And when the Nets needed him to score, he said, OK, it's my turn, to, my time to score now. And instead of passing those sort of lobs to DeAndre Jordan and Nicholas Claxton, etc., at the rim, he starts scoring, he started hitting a few threes, etc., and just turned the game around. Uh, and the, the final point before I throw back to you, what really impressed me from a Nets point of view was they really collapsed in this game. The Spurs finished the game on a 10-0 run, including a... Uh, DeJounte Murray hitting a, 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 a shot at the buzzer to tie it up and they came in the overtime and just went bang, bang, bang. 8-0 run, game over. You know, and I think uh, even the Nets the, themselves a few weeks ago, I think they would have been deer in the headlights after blowing a lead like that. They just came in again. What are you doing winning time? Do you make the right decisions? And they made the right, right plays and, you know, with Kyrie out there, uh, Harden, I mean, you've got to be switched on for 24 seconds of every shot clock and for four, across 48 minutes because they're not going to give you and let up at all on the defensive end. And on their side of the ball on defence, again, you talk about being active on defence, that's the least you can do. Well, that's what they were doing. And Claxon is, is actually a nice addition coming off the bench. He started to play the last few games and Kyrie's played defence. I mean, the only guy that legitimately didn't play defence in that game was James Harden. But have you seen much of the Nets? I mean, to me, I, I, I generally do overreact to one game sample sizes, as you know. I've, I've penciled them in as the NBA favourites at the moment. I think they can beat the Lakers. And I think when you consider Kevin Durant still to be added to this team, by gee, that they're starting to look scary. I have. Um, I saw more of the... When he, I wanted to see what happened when he goes back to Houston, right? It's a shame there wasn't a, an arena full of fans there. But, you know, so uh, so just that the game after he played against the Spurs, he goes and has 10 assists and 8 turnovers, perhaps trying to do a little too much, you know, in his revenge match against uh, against the Rockets. But similarly, Daz, I think I I would have probably said this the instant the trade happened, or said the only way this works is if the ball is in James Harden's hands. It has to be in his hands. Right, we talked about what Kevin Durant can do at three levels. We can talk about how shifting he can be, um, you know, at, um, in the high post or dare I say even the dunker spot or in the corner. He can literally play anywhere on the floor. And Kyrie, bloody, if he could accept work playing weak side and off ball and just letting Harden draw the attention and, and finding Kyrie, fucking how dynamic Kyrie can be shooting 40% from three. And we know the way he can attack um, like a, like a freaking artist, right? So, yes, I saw this early on. We're seeing it more now. And KD's not even playing, Daz, right? Mm. Like, they're getting quality minutes from Bruce Brown. And DeAndre Jordan's a serviceable big. You know, he's not he's not very good, but he's not also a complete abyss. He's serviceable. He cleans the boards and does, you know, large man things. And it just it's just when you've got that level of well, these are all-time great talents. That's the other thing that we'll, we'll probably only appreciate. Um, after the Bucks lose to them in five games in the second round, you know I'll, I'll appreciate it in ten years from now. But it's beautiful watch. If you, we've always said, stop flopping and shut your mouth. And if you play beautiful basketball, you you will have me. And it did remind me, Daz, not very different stylistically, but the the calmness with which Harden plays, that command, right, reminded me so much of when he and Chris Paul were about to take down the Warriors where it's just the whole tempo of the game. And there's something that could rocks you to sleep with his 61 dribbles per possession. You know, <laughs> it just rocks you to sleep and then kills you. So I will, I will fully embrace great basketball. If he just keeps his mouth shut and, and, and doesn't stops the flopping. Um, and just again, small sample sizes, last point on Harden, the analytics guys won't like it. But what I like about his stat line stats it's like seven three-pointers attempted and seven free throws. The following game, you know, six three-pointers and five free throws. He's not just chucking the ball from 31 feet and throwing his body and flailing and, and 
trying to referees into free throws, right? So that's why I'm also seeing it's not just his attitude, but his actual where he's at on the court and when he's taking his shots and how he's taking them. There's a lot of that floater game and that mid-range game, and he's what that tells me is like when he's attacking, he's keeping his heads up, his ears up, right, his, his eyes open for a Joe Harris or a Kyrie. But when they're covered, the passing lane's filled, then he's going for the shot, and he's not just trying to throw his arms in the air. So, yep, I'm saying it. The insufferable Harden is playing beautiful basketball, and you, you're not watching basketball. You don't understand basketball if you can't see it. So I'm, if you and I can embrace it right, Daz, I'm with you. I don't know how anyone's going to stop that team when, when Durant's back. And I'll just, I won't like it, but it'll be sort of like watching Toronto get eviscerated by LeBron in 2017. You're going to go, <laughs> oh, man, man, that's so good. Like you feel for, for Lowry and DeRozan for getting eviscerated. But man, when you watch LeBron go to Dragon Mountain, if we watched the, him and Kyrie and Durant combine for 120 points, like they're going to do it. They're both going to, they're all going to score 40 one night. That's my, that's my hope. The first NBA team to have three guys score 40 in a game. Like it's going to be them. Um, fuck. You maybe talk about Harden, Daz. Yes, he's great. Let's move on. <laughs> well, I mean, the last look, they're fun to watch. I mean, that's, that's what I did they're not expect, I think. Yeah. Um, just how much yeah. fun this would be to watch. I mean, for example, Kyrie goes in in the first. So if, if you defend James Harden for a good 10 seconds and, and Harden goes in on the drive, and you, you block him off and somehow you defend him, he just kicks it out to Kyrie, and now Kyrie's going to work, you know. And Kyrie on one, this one play goes into the lane acts like he's going to lay it up. So Pirtle comes over looking for the block and he just switches hands and then just lobs it up to the, on the other side of the rim to uh, DeAndre Jordan who just gets in a dunk. And you just go, what can you do to defend that? There's nothing you can yeah. do to defend it. And that's good no. stylistic to watch because everyone's involved. It's not like everyone's just watch, standing around watching James Harden or Kyrie Irving dribble. Like Everyone's involved. Everyone needs to be on alert because they're using all the players and Bruce Brown's playing really well. Um, you know, Landry Shamet plays well when he, when he gets the chance. He didn't play well in the game I'm referencing, but generally he's playing well also. So uh, I, I just think when, when you look at the game and you think, they're going to replace Bruce Brown with Kevin Durant and have the same team. It gets very, very scary to, to, to think about what they're going to look yeah. like through a seven-game series. Um, one team that's not hasn't been going that well, Dazzle, they have won their last two after you know, coaching move is the Atlanta Hawks. So moving on to their news, quickly on the news portion of things, uh, Lloyd, Pierce was, uh, Lloyd Pierce was fired uh, earlier in the week. What, what did you make of that? I mean, I saw... Uh, the Hawks in a few games, I mean, they've been really awful in close games, particularly Trey Young's decision-making. I don't know how Lloyd Pierce can be blamed for some of the decisions that Trey Young makes at the end of some of those games. And just a few games where I just get the sense that they were just below that level of competitiveness that you need to be. I mean, I know Orlando, for example, have got a lot of injuries at the moment. But say what you like about them, Steve Clifford still has them playing hard night in, night out. Whereas I just felt there was too many nights where Atlanta just did not show up um, and, you know, were getting blown out. Or, as I say, the, execu- the fourth quarter execution, uh, particularly on defence, was, was abysmal. Trey has been awful to watch. It's just no lie, right? He's got his moments, but it's, there's just no vision amongst that team. That's got to fall on him. Obviously, he and, he and Collins not seeing eye to eye. Some of these rumblings now that players weren't happy with Pierce. I don't know if, how much to how much stock to put in that. Um, we all know the injuries they've had in and out lineups, a lot of roster change with uh, with Gallo and Bogdanovich and, and Chris Dunn, who hasn't really played much yet, and maybe the single dumbest offseason move, which was to bring Rajon Rondo into this club and expect him to play, and then he doesn't play, unsurprisingly, with injuries and malaise, and therefore they back to old Atlanta with no backup point guards. It's just, it's been a mess. The roster's been a mess. The mood's been a mess. Trey's been a mess. Edit's been a mess. So Lloyd Pierce, I'm sure, isn't. He carries some culpability. But these sorts of things where it just, I, I ladder back up and there's, there's no Levingston moment here, Daz. It's a little bit of disgust that we see the same exact pattern from franchise after franchise after franchise after franchise. And it, it boggles the mind how um, a group of what would seem to be very successful 
of business owners and executives can diagnose the situation and make the exact same mistakes that so many other franchises have made before them. What I'm talking about specifically is ownership getting impatient, the ownership and putting up all kinds of heat and the pressure on the front office to completely change their strategies and approaches, right? Schlink was brought in, right, to build a long-term, long-term developmental solution, build a long-term winner here, like a la Danny Ainge, a la, you know, kind of Quinn Steider. That's what he was brought in. Young guys, a lot of lottery picks, build this thing for the long-term. And suddenly the ownership decides to make a 180, pile all these ridiculous expectations on the team with a bunch of mismatched parts, a bunch of free agents, a short off season, no champ, and then fire the coach. I, it, it, it just makes absolutely no sense. So what if they were men with courage and strategic foresight and wanted to pivot and change your strategy, change your execution in the off season, right? Because what they've done now is tarnish a man's name and Lloyd Pierce, right? And basically waste an entire season, right? If it's very familiar to the Jason Kidd, Joe Prunty year where baby GM discount paid nothing, nobody John Horst, no nouse and no credibility. He wanted Kidd gone in the off season, but didn't have a nouse. The owner said, no, that's our boy. Give him one more shot. And it completely ruined their season. And I'm sure there's countless other examples, Daz, but that one rings most close to home. So I like it. It stinks. It's short-sighted. It's um, narrow-minded. It shows lack of strategic foresight and strategic execution. And now Travis Schlenk's got the single hottest seat in all the NBA. When his hand-picked coach, he has to fire himself, right? And so, I mean, his his clock is ticking. If not, um, if not, it would make a lot of sense now to just blow it all up. Then, right? If you're the owner, I don't even care what the owner's name is at this point. Is just wipe the slate clean. You want the guys who bunch wanted to compete, go hire Jeff Van Gundy and, you know, Ed Stefanski in the offseason and go try to win yourself, you know, 47 games next year. But I don't like it. I feel for the Hawks fans. They got some young talent, but I think they're in a really, 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 really tricky spot, Daz, with now a GM on the hot seat. John Collins, who wants a lot of them, is going to demand being paid, right? You've got guys like Cam Reddish, who is not developed, and the lingering sense of Schlenk taking Trey Young over Luka hanging over the franchise and growing in, in size. Uh, Bogdanovich is going to want big playing time. I mean, DeAndre Hunter was perhaps their best player, but he's been hurt. It's just, it's a mess, Daz. It's suddenly, suddenly a mess. Yeah, so I, th- I, think, anyway, I think the that, fact that they had Nate McMillan on the roster probably made the decision a bit easier from their point of view in the established coach. Uh, my worry for the Hawks has just been the lack of player development, really, and and, and to see Trey Young take a step back um, this season for whatever reason that's been, uh, I, I think that was sort of... When I watched them again against the Spurs, they got absolutely wiped out. I mean, the, the final margin was 11, but they were down by 44 at like three-quarter time or something ridiculous. Uh, in that particular game so it was a really really poor performance uh, and when you see performances yeah. like that you just go this team's quitting on the coach and whatever he was telling him to do in the fourth quarters I can guarantee they weren't doing it and I mean I just think Trey <laughs> Young look th- there's nothing the final point in this I think there's nothing that's going to get a coach for more and I said this to you off there than a borderline all-star that thinks he's a super-duper star. And Trey Young thinks he's a super-duper star, and I think someone needs to come into that organisation and say, listen, you know, because Steph Curry wasn't, didn't act like he was Steph Curry before he carried, you know what I mean? Like, you know, he, yeah. he wasn't yeah. swanning around like I'm the second coming, and that's what I see from Trey Young this year. The attitude is abysmal. Um, you know, it's everything goes for him. They just don't look like they're having fun. They, they, they play zero defense in the fourth quarter because Trey's just waiting for them to get the ball out of the basket so he can touch it again. Um, so some, some of his defensive efforts does in, in the end of those games. We're, we're sort of going into anti-11s and stuff now, but uh, it, it hasn't been good to watch. But I agree with your point overall. I mean, I think franchises need to have, uh, you know, a, a clear a clear strategy and then they need to have the patience to execute that strategy and I don't think you've seen them have the patience um, to go ahead that. but we'll, we'll see we'll see what happens I mean the early returns have been good from Nate McMillan but sometimes you will see that uh, when you when you get rid of a coach 
you'll see a little mini bump uh, straight away. So does look in the in the few minutes we got left. I'm going to quickly look at the our sort of mid-season awards and the four main awards: the most valuable player, defensive player of the year, coach of the year, rookie of the year. Let's start with rookie of the year. I think it's a pretty open and shut. I think at the moment I cashed in my uh, Halliburton bet once I saw enough of Lamelo Ball. I mean, can you see anyone in this rookie class challenging Lamelo Ball, or do you just think it's Lamelo first? Mm. Halliburton second, then Daylight? Correct. I Again, the only way would be if LaMelo somehow gets hurt, to be honest, as, or if Halliburton suddenly takes that team on his back and turns them into like a playoff team. I could see that getting a big rush, yeah, because there's a bit of De'Aaron Fox buzz out there, and it's just been so unlikely, right? Halliburton was, what, drafted 12th, 10th? He fell, right? And so something, there's something fun about right what we didn't expect we kind of everyone kind of thought Lamelo should have been the number one pick, and so the scouts who were way smarter than me kind of saw this coming, right? Perhaps not this soon or at this level, but they saw this. I think you'd have a fair number of voters going just that Cinderella effect of Halliburton if he does something quite special the second half of the season, but it would take something truly extraordinary um, because you also have right as great as as the artistry of Halliburton, but the artistry is more. Um, Andre Miller, right? Malcolm Brogdon, mm. uh, right? Mano Ginobili artistry. LaMelo Ball has fucking Kyrie artistry, right? He's got Magic Johnson. His artistry is, right? Wows people like me, right? It's impossible not to marvel at his highlights. So he's going to win all the stylistic voters, Daz. So, and, and rightfully so. It makes you smile with the ease at which he does things. So, it should be LaMelo, it will be LaMelo, but I still leave the door, but it's probably 90% mellow, but there's a door still open for a, a future for a Tyree uh, Halliburton or well, something crazy. But With yeah. the great players, it seems like the game's in slow motion for them, and that's where LaMelo is, and I think Halliburton even to some extent, but certainly with LaMelo, yeah. he's, he's like everyone else is playing in slow motion, and he's just picking his way through. Um, because he can sort of see three, four moves ahead well, of what people are doing. You know, he feels like he, he feels like Steve Nash on the break, because he feels like that soccer player, right? He just knows he knows where all all their nine humans are and how they're going to move, and he just can feel his feel is extraordinary. Mm. That's what's so beautiful. It's just beyond his years. That's why I know, of course, all the the many. The whatever the 15 years of practice but there's there's something inane about it isn't there there has to be some nature nurture here there's something got to be inborn to be this good at feel at being of an age is it's savant like and Halliburton's just more of that yeah it's it's defensive right sort of mm. feel and strategic feel and you can see his mind calculating his is more as a thinking man's feel where Lamelo is it's pure art Daz it's just the, the the music's flowing out of him. He's Beethoven at the piano. So I'm even fucking giggling talking about it. Lamelo Ball's the rookie of the year, man. Mm. He should be. <laughs> he should be. He's bloody fun. What about uh, defensive player of the year? To me, uh, this is another one where it's a no-brainer. To me, it's Rudy Gobert. I don't know, but who who else do you sort of think might be in the conversation? I just on Gobert, no one impacts the other team's offense like Gobert does, in my yeah. opinion. I can't, and I just can't see who you can make the argument for. I still, I than... tend, yeah, look, I'm sorry to interrupt you, is that yeah. I, I tend to also agree that the centers, great defensive centers have a disproportionate impact on the game, yeah, because both obviously, obviously the shot, um, the protecting of the rim, and also the way they impact potential shots, right, and the way they make people change their mindsets or pull up, pull up or try to, you know, shoot the arc differently, just the impact they have even when they're not, grabbing a rebound or then isolation is disproportionate to perimeter players. But I could see a world where um, if they run away with it and he's got some signature gains where you could get some Ben Simmons votes, mm-hmm. Daz. So when he's locked in and he's saying he's shutting down Jason Tatum in crunch time and he's completely making Pascal Siakam look like, um, you know, Louis Pasteur. I don't even know what Pascal, the mathematician's <laughs> first name was going to be. So I completely bungled that metaphor, but I could see a world where Simmons gets some, gets some thought um, for just his versatility and have some of those lockdown games. But um, beyond that, I think Marcus Smart was off to a good start, but kind of faded. Mm-hmm. And 
Embiid's just been too good on offense. It's almost like he's so good on offense and more in the MVP conversation, it kind of takes away from what he's doing on the defensive end. Um, so it's not even he's not any, done anything differently. I think it's just in the mind of the voters and certainly in my mind, I'm just sort of more thinking, you know, who, he's more MVP than he is defensive player of the year. Mm. But um, that's kind of my top three unless I'm – and Giannis has been great, but their defense has fallen off, so I can't – he can't. I wouldn't. He might be a second team sort of vote uh, this year. But Giannis um, is boring there. Everyone's sick of Giannis. Um, yeah, and beyond. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah, about now? A couple of minutes left. Quickly, MVP. Who are you leaning towards? Uh, my vote would actually go to Embiid at the moment. Although I think Jokic and LeBron are in the conversation, and I think Luka Doncic is coming. And don't forget Dame Lillard. So I think it's a it's a five man sort of view at the moment. Um, in the MVP, but I would lean towards Embiid at this stage of the season. Just the numbers are just ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's close. If Denver would win a few more games and didn't do, do such dumb things, I think Jokic is having a better season mm. and a more uni- and a more unique season. Again, I'm sorry, artistry matters. It's just, it's a sport, and winning is important, but it's also entertainment. And so, how you play and how you make me feel watching the game is important, right? which is probably also perhaps some of the fatigue, which is fair, which is that, you know, we've seen him get around every defender and dunk, you know, 500 times. Okay. Well, what's next Giannis? And so Giannis is not in the MVP conversation, although his numbers are extraordinary because I think we have to expect more from him, but from one and one, a is Embiid and Jokic. I probably have Embiid slightly ahead. If Denver won a couple more games, I'd probably have Jokic. And then I don't think LeBron, I think LeBron's kind of fallen off Daz. When Anthony Davis has gone out, they've been bloody Mm-hmm. ordinary if not no. bad and then again this doesn't mean, that's just part of the conversation i mean lebron is worse this is when you start losing a bunch of games and you're playing 39 minutes a night and you're the goat mm, not great look mm-hmm. so um which goes to further evidence that right how easy it is to be lebron and anthony davis when they're there mm-hmm. and how tricky it is when you don't have a an all-star or a hall of famer next to you so i think lebron's dropped off the top five we have to at some point ask how much how much stock do we put in the burning down of the Rockets and how stock do we put in right James Harden's play? You know, I, I think if he if he keeps his mouth shut and has thirty more games like he's had this last sort of twenty, I, I think he'll have a case. He's probably won't catch he may not catch Jokic and Embiid, but I think I'd put Harden in my top five, Daz, which I can't believe. Again, I probably would have been uh, step ahead yeah, of Giannis. I'd still have I'd have Luca and, and Dame ahead of him at the moment. I think Doncic is the one to watch because he's been on a fire lately, and Dallas he is wins starting games, to win again. but his his efficiency is so. I think that there's a lot of voters who kind of look at the the true well, the three point shooting's shooting been a bit yeah. better, but I, I think yeah. he's a bit way off. But I agree. I mean, Harden could get himself into the conversation, but I think the way he started the season in Houston to me is disqualifying uh, for him. So That's final, fair enough. Yeah. Final question, coach of the year. I was going to say Popovich, but then the Spurs just lost to OKC, so I'm, I'm dirty on Pop now. Uh, so he's at... I think, coach of the year. Look, I think Terry Stotts has got to be up there. What what he's done, um, Portland has been outstanding. Uh, I think Quinn Snyder is going to be the sexy pick, and I think given that Utah have the softest schedule in the league going forward... They're clearly going to be a one seed. I think they're going to be a one seed by sort of four or five games when all is said and done does. I think Quinn Snyder is a short-odds favourite to win the award. I'd probably lean towards him myself, but I think there's a couple of honourable mentions, including I think Steve Nash deserves an honourable mention because that the degree of difficulty on that team is harder than you think. But I think once you get it right, the degree of difficulty is very easy. And I think he's clearly got it right from an early stage there in Brooklyn. And as I said, Terry Stott, I think has done a really good year, good good job. And I think, you know, if you want to get in the 28th spot, you're looking at the Brad Stevens of the world, Daz. Yeah, he's about 28th degree. <laughs> a step ahead of Eric Spolster, who can't coach either, yeah, whose right. team lost 94 to 80 to the fucking Hawks. He scored 80 <laughs> points against the Hawks. Yeah, well, the Nate McMillan the... Hawks now. Come on. That's true. So my top two questions of these votes go... These votes go uh, one of three ways, Daz. One, which is the the tip of the hat to the, the long-tenured coach who finally breaks through, and those votes will go towards Quinn Snyder, and rightfully so, as a yep. tip of the hat to the culture that he's built and the tenure and the continuity he's maintained and ability to retain and keep very happy players like Jordan Clarkson. Who, who'd think, who to think a guy like him would thrive in, a, right? let's just call it a not-so-great urban environment for African-American players? Suddenly guys like Clarkson are loving 
living and playing, you know, in Utah. So the hat to that. Then you've got the unexpected coaching change by a contending team turned around. So there's going to be the Doc Rivers vote. Say, look, we were right. You get rid of Brett Brown, give the team to Doc Rivers, and look what he's been able to do. Is he quote unquote unlocked or reached Joel Embiid in a certain way? There's that vote. So I think those guys are probably one and one A. And then you've got the who's done more with less vote, which um, I would I think you'd. He won't get serious. So this is kind of the Taylor Jenkins vote, Daz, where mm. the Memphis Grizzly has been surprisingly instant. They've had tons of injuries and guys in and out, and, and Jaws missed a bunch of time, and Triple J hasn't played at all, and Brandon Clark started terribly this year, and he's playing bloody slow-mo and Dylan Brooks enormous minutes. And, hey, and that disparaged slow-mo kind of on this podcast. Yeah, he was he wasn't very good today, but <laughs> that's why I kind of go, but you know the category, it's the more with less coach, Yeah who tends not to win, but they'll kind of get a lot of that. They'll get probably those second those second and third place votes. Yeah, so it's, it's who made a purse someone... out of a sow's ear. That, that's going to be yeah. that sort of vote. As, I, as you say, Stotts, I think Pop, uh, Taylor Jenkins, uh, Tibbs even, I guess if, if somehow the Knicks can manage to get above 500, he's going to yeah. get some love. So yeah. I think, um, you know, it's going to be an issue. But I, I think if, if Utah, if the second half of the season goes the way I expect, and Utah run away of this one seed across the NBA. Yeah, uh, I think Quinn yeah. Snyder is going to be. Well, I, I agree. You'll see it the way we saw with the Bucks in that in that um, Eastern Conference Finals year, where you know it's basically the whole idea of executive of the year, coach of the year, MVP. Wouldn't surprise me similarly to get defensive player of the year, Gobert, coach of the yep. year in, in in Quinn Snyder as a as a rightful tip to a team who, you know, as you said, if they if they kind of run away with the one seed against LA teams, that's a Again, a very good Western Conference again this year. Even though a lot of talent has moved east, it'd be it'd be well deserved. So I'd go Quinn number one, Doc number two, Taylor Jenkins number three for my personal vote right at this point. Okay, all right, Daz. Well, look, we'll leave it there, mate. We'll uh, we might catch this week after All Star. We just want to get, I guess, a, a sense of where we think the league's at and what what they're doing right, what some of the things they're doing wrong, um, and, and give some honest feedback there, as well as sort of look at any other sort of Livingston moments that might have jumped out next week. But uh, enjoy the little break, Daz, and uh, we look forward to the second half of the season. My money's on Isaac Okoro in the dunk contest, Daz. Well, he <laughs> you... wouldn't be on him in the three-point shootout. I can assure you of that. <laughs> no, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. They should have stopped counting after the first two games and he would have been in, <laughs> he'd been in it. Him and Dante DiVincenzo would have been you know, yeah. battling it out. But uh, anyway, it'll okay, be, hopefully it'll be a little bit of fun in the All-Star break. Look yeah. forward to See it. See you, buddy. Okay, mate. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Took the charge, and there was no foul called.